I know there's a group of you that are memorizing this book of Ephesians, which is uh, a hard task and impressive, encouraging. I hope that's going well. Persevere in your memorization. Um, but sometimes they get nervous depending upon how much I'm... They're, they're trying to memorize as I preach through the book. So they're, they're hoping for smaller sections along the way. I go slower rather than faster. I'm going to go very slow this morning. I'm going to talk about one verse. So that gives you like an extra week to catch up if, if you're behind on your memorization. But, uh, but we return to this beautiful letter. This is Paul's um, letter to the church at Ephesus. Some believe it was a group of churches there in Ephesus. And it's a theologically rich letter. And it's a pastoral letter. I find it interesting that Paul never wrote a systematic theology, at least that we know of. He didn't send a uh, you know, book of theology to a church. He wrote them a pastoral letter. And within that was the theology and the practical living all together. So, and there was a place for systematic theologies, by the way. Years ago, there was a man here on Sunday morning that came up to me after church, and he said uh, that he was against systematic theology, and he was very strong about it. Uh, and I think maybe I knew where he was coming from. I think he was saying we need to derive our theology from Scripture. But there is certainly a place for good theology and theology books. But in the inspiration of Scripture, we didn't get one of those. So uh, all of Paul's organized theology would have been nice, but God designed it in this way and in this letter. And it's a letter about grace. It's a letter about God's grace. We have covered the first three chapters um, about the grace of God and the grace of God in the lives of the Ephesians, certainly the grace of God in your own life, and its saving property. But not only has God saved us, we're going to see now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, there is a sanctification process that God has left us here on earth instead of glorifying us immediately. Uh, He wants us to grow in that grace. And God's grace is a life-changing dynamic. And so this whole letter here is ultimately about God and his grace towards sinners. He's called a group here, and we saw this all the way in chapter 1, starting there in verse 4, that he chose to save many. And he chose to redeem them. He chose to adopt them. He chose to reconcile them to himself through the work of his son. And he has given his spirit as a kind of seal or mark by which we are owned by God and we are God's forever. And so this letter concerns Christians. It concerns the church. It is a letter to the church about the grace of God and not only what God has done for the church, but also how the church is then to function as a church. And that's where he begins here in chapter 4 with a lot of his commands and imperatives. And so what we find here is really very much for us, isn't it? We are the church. We are post-cross, post-resurrection. And as he said earlier, the church is the manifold wisdom of God. We display the glory of God and the wisdom of God, not only to those around us, but to those in the heavenly places, Paul said. You know, there's an audience in heaven that's observing what is taking place here. People are being saved by the gospel. 
And God is growing his church throughout the world. But ultimately, though much of the letter is about us, it's ultimately about God. It's ultimately about Christ and him crucified who gave his life for us. And we're going to reflect on God's grace this morning. It's not only the means of our redemption, it is the means of our transformation as Christians. And so in light of that, we come to chapter 4, and this first section is the first three verses, and I'll read it for us, and then we're going to look at just verse 1. Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here is a key passage, a turning point in his letter. And somewhat predictable for Paul. If you know Paul, you know what he does. He, He has the therefore there. He goes from doctrine to practice, from theology to application. And so we're going to find that here. Uh, He turns here from what we might say the gospel or gospel truths that we've learned to how are we to live our life for the glory of God. Doctrine should affect your life. And doctrine itself is practical. But doctrine should be impacting you not only in your thoughts and your, your thinking, but also in all aspects of your life. And we find here this turning point is a transition here of where Paul is taking grace, God's grace and salvation, and he is applying it to your life in very specific areas. And he begins doing that in chapter 4, in and, and one area after another and another, through chapter 5 and then into chapter 6. One theologian, Alva McLean, in his book Law and Grace, wrote this, he said, this context of grace is the only environment in which the will of God can be most fully realized in the Christian life. In this context of grace, we grow, 2 Peter 3.18, we stand, 1 Peter 5.12, we are built up, Acts 20.32, we are made strong, 2 Timothy 2.1, we are made perfect, 1 Peter 5.10, We find freedom from sin's dominion, Romans 6, 14. We find liberty from legal bondage, Galatians 5, 1 through 4. We find a sufficient motive for doing the will of God, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We find an enabling power for Christian living, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And we find recovery when we fall, Hebrews 4, 16. And we find assurance as to the final outcome of the Christian life, Acts 20, 32. Did you get all of that? Okay. I don't think I got it all. But what is he saying there? The grace of God is central in your life. God's grace is given to us in and through the Son of God. And like Alva McLean says, it is the environment in which you now live your Christian life. Remember earlier in Ephesians, he said you're rooted and grounded in love. It's this kind of atmosphere you're in, the foundation you stand on. It's the love of God. It's the grace of God. Even Jesse mentioned there, the patience of God. Right? Paul says that in Romans 2, the the kindness 
and the patience of God lead you to repentance? You know, that's, that's what it does. It's the grace of God changes everything in your life. And our text begins to reveal this very thing. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So, there's no pass here. We can't learn doctrine and not change anything in our life. He holds us accountable, doesn't he? So he begins the second half strongly. And just to back up here and review the whole book, The first chapter of Ephesians is Paul's pastoral prayer for his people. The second and third chapters are a rehearsal of the gospel, Paul's gospel rehearsal. They know the gospel, but he reminds them of the gospel itself in those chapters there. And then now, in chapter 4, going through chapter 6, verse 9, is Paul's exhortation to walk. And finally, at the end of chapter 6, is Paul's exhortation to stand, to stand firm. So now that we are saved, now that we were once dead in our sin, we've been made alive in God through Christ, we're to walk. That's what living people do. Dead people don't walk. Living people do. And that's what he's calling us to do, is to walk or to live our life in light of the gospel. The easiest breakup, the uh, outline of the whole book is the first three chapters of the gospel, and the other three chapters are the application of the gospel, living out the gospel. But Paul here urges life change, and I want to look at two things, but we're only going to cover one this morning, and those two things are this. Number one, connect the gospel to your life. Connect the gospel to your life. And secondly, live a gospel-worthy life. We're going to cover both of those. I thought I was going to cover both this morning, but we're going to just do one. And I really want to slow down here because this is very important. So you only have one point this morning. should be easier to write down and follow. And that is connect your life to the gospel. And for some of you, you, you may have never heard of this before. I didn't hear about this for many years of, of how the gospel itself connects practically to your life and begins to reshape your heart. But we have to make a connection with the aspects of our life to the gospel. The gospel is not simply something in the past. It's not simply a, a kind of trophy on the bookcase. It's, oh, wow, yeah, I, when I heard the gospel, I was saved and I could admire it. It's a thing of the past. No, it it continues, or it should continue, to make an impact on you. What is the gospel? Let's just go there. It just struck me. 1 Corinthians 15. I don't want to assume you know what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15. There's many places we could go. This is one of my favorites. Because Paul gives gives the gospel to us in a very concise form. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Here's some great irony, right? Paul's reminding them. Now I would remind you, brothers. What does he want to remind them of? Of the gospel I preach to you. Kind of like we tend to forget what's most important. In which you stand, on which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, what is that gospel, Paul? 
Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And he continues the narrative eventually to himself, whom he calls you know, the least of the apostles. Um, but what is the gospel there? Very simple. Christ died for our sins. Five words. Children can remember it on one hand. Christ died for our sins. So children, never forget that. Never forget those five words. That is the gospel, the heart of the gospel there. And he was buried. And what's the result? He was raised on the third day, right? Declaring his death victory and getting us, as Paul says in Romans 1, our justification. So that is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day. And and what Paul and the apostles do regularly is they take the gospel and then they, they drive that truth into their life and then they begin to make connections with the gospel into different aspects of their life. And we're going to look at that this morning. They, they wield the gospel almost like a tool, like a sword, and they use it constantly in their letters and in the books of the New Testament. But they make a gospel connection. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. He tells the Corinthians the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. He needed to tell the Romans that, and he told the Corinthians the same thing. The Roman Christians seemed to have a little bit more together. The Corinthian Christians, they, they had a lot of work cut out for themselves. Either way, he tells them both, the word of the cross, the gospel, it is, for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I love what he tells Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God, there's the gospel, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What a, what a strong, clear passage, isn't that? The grace of God has appeared. Isn't that a neat way to talk about the grace of God? Well, how did the grace of God appear? It was in a person, wasn't it? In the person of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, but he says there, not only bringing salvation for all, we know that, but it trains us. Like in a gymnasium, training you for a sport. It continues to work on you. Continues to chip away at you. Continues to convict. It continues to admonish and encourage and inform you. The gospel is training us to renounce the ungodliness of the world and to live in a way that pleases God. So grace is God's power. And the gospel of grace trains us. It is the means not only of our justification, 
but it also is at the heart of our sanctification. And, and maybe a, a caveat here, there are many other aspects of sanctification. And I say this because at times, more in recent history, there are speakers and churches that have, they're only saying what I'm going to say this morning, but they don't add in other elements like mortifying the flesh, fighting yourself. Paul says, I beat my body black and blue. Uh, There are many aspects of sanctification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it. It's God who's at work in you. But this is at the heart of it all. And that is the impact of the gospel in your life. The Spirit uses the gospel for the rest of your Christian life. So Paul, here, back in in Ephesians chapter 4, he has articulated the gospel. He's admired it. He's prayed about it, that they understand it better. He's ended chapter 3 praising God for all that uh, the gospel stands for. Now he applies it to their life. He is using its power. And he wants them to do the same. And I want you this morning to begin to learn how to make a connection from the gospel to each aspect of your life. Because that's exactly what the apostles do. And once you see that, you'll start seeing it in the New Testament more. The gospel should lead to life change. It should lead to impacting your heart and your affections and your thoughts and on the outside as well. They who were once dead are now alive. They now walk. And when Paul uses this language here, to walk, that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling, that's his way of just saying live this way. He likes to use that language walk. Um, in, In your life, in your lifestyle, this is the way you are to conduct yourself. Notice, let's start there at verse 1 again. I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord. I mean, I learned many years ago, if you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what is it therefore? Right? It's pointing backwards, isn't it, to what I've already said, Paul says. In light of the gospel and all these things that I've told you about, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been chosen that you might be a holy and blameless, that you might be adopted as children, and on he goes. In light of all of that, therefore, I want you to live this way. I want you to live in light of all of that. But notice what he says, though. He repeats himself, stating that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Remember that earlier in chapter 3, verse 1? He said it again. I, I I think Paul, he's trying to persuade them. I think he's trying to kind of yank on their hearts a little bit. They know he's a prisoner, and and he tried to satisfy their fears there in chapter 3. No worry, God's still at work. But he uses this again, I think, to really speak to their hearts and to persuade them. Notice that word there, urge. I, I urge you. It's a very strong word. I urge you as a prisoner of the gospel. You know, I'm out here spreading this good news for the Gentiles, and I'm in prison. I urge you to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Should have an impact on on their listening ears there. He is employing help, I think, to urge them to live a gospel-worthy manner. 
to persuade them to live differently, to live like their master. I, an apostle, yes, of the risen Jesus who is in prison for sharing his marvelous message of grace, I am now appealing to you, and even the word urge has a sense of authority as well, uh, authority, passion, persuasion. He's strong here, isn't he? He wants them to get this. Because I think it's easy to kind of close the book at the end of chapter 3. Because the hard work really begins in chapter 4. I think it's far easier to read a systematic theology than to start doing the things I need to do. (laughs) Uh, I need to rely more on the Spirit. I need more help. And it's more convicting and it's more difficult. So there's a strong urging here for them to live in light of the grace of God and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. What have they been called to? Again, chapter 1, they've been called to live holy and blameless lives. But not only that, they've been called predestined, he uses the word there, for adoption. You are called by God to be a child of God. He says later that you've been, you, you are now fellow citizens. You are now the household of God. Uh, we now pray Father as our Lord did. He's called you to a new life. He's called you to a new home, a new family. He's called you to be his own children. And in light of all of that, walk in a worthy manner. Again, Paul doesn't say, now be good people, because that's the right thing to do. Be good citizens. Be nice. He doesn't just say something morally like that. It's based here, verse 1, in the gospel, which I find is in this phrase of the calling to which you have been called. In light of what I've said, Paul says, what God has called you to, and what he's made you. In light of that, walk in a worthy manner. Paul always connects to the gospel. All of his imperatives, his exhortations. You know, he doesn't even say here, follow your conscience. And he does talk about the conscience in various places, and that's important. That's a whole nother study. But what does he say here? You're to walk in a way that is worthy of that which you've been called to. He gets right to the heart of the matter in their practical life, making that powerful, enabling connection to the gospel. Walk a gospel-worthy way. That is, the grace of God should be changing you on a regular basis. We must live this way in light of the gospel. We must do this. We must connect the gospel to our life. It's why the apostles do this regularly, because the gospel is, right, Romans 1.18, 1 Corinthians 1.18 there, it is the power of God for those who are being saved. It trains us for godliness. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, the law, the, the intention of the law was to lead us to Christ. Now that we are in Christ forever, we are to be changed 
by the grace of Christ, by the grace of God, by his love for us. The law still edifies. The law is still profitable for every good work. Yet we live now in light of not just a revelation of the nature and character of God and what he commands and expects, but we now live in light of the fact that God has been gracious to us. He's pardoned sinners. Uh, He's not only given us the law. The law would just condemn us, Paul says. Uh, Romans 7, the law reveals that I covet. It it reveals my sinfulness. And it's important and needed, but it's the grace of God that changes me, saves me, and transforms me. So what I want to do is I want to pause now, and I want to dig deep, and I want to look at some gospel connections in the Scriptures. I want to help you make these connections that he's doing this beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and he's going to do through chapter 4 and chapter 5 as well. So I'm going to focus intensely on what this gospel connection in life is. It's kind of like, I'd like to set up some tents this morning and camp out here. Some of you were saying earlier you don't like camping. I don't know why you don't like camping. Isn't camping fun? You know, not at all. Paul doesn't think so. Maybe not in the summer here. By getting outside, setting up tents, oh, it just, it's wonderful. Not all of you like it. But I, I would use the words of Peter from the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. So I want to make some tents here. I want to camp out here for a little while and see how the apostles take the gospel and connect it. How does the gospel connect to your life? How do we make this connection biblically and practically? I want to give you three directions. These are just things that have helped me think through how the gospel relates to my life on a practical level. The first is this. The gospel is our model. The gospel is our model in our life. Christ himself, who he is, what he came to do, what he said, And his death end up being an example for us, end up being a model for our life, and including his sacrifice especially. Turn with me a little bit later to chapter 4, verse 32. And I'll highlight some verses here. Just one here from Ephesians, verse 32. It's a great one to memorize. Maybe you're like, I don't know about memorizing the entire book of Ephesians. I do want to have a life after all, Pastor. Well... Memorize some scripture. It's great. Here's a great one. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He doesn't say here, you're to be kind because that's what's right. It's good to be a kind person. It's really nice to be kind to others. You should have a tender heart and be forgiving. But what does he say is the reason, the basis for kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness? Can you find the gospel in verse 32? As God in Christ forgave you. You see the connection? Paul, he does not want to make someone that was like him before Christ. He doesn't want to make a Pharisee doing the right things, checking off all the boxes. It looks really good on the outside. 
But really, there's not a heart change. There's not really gratitude in a gospel-centered motivation. But here, we're to be kind to others. We're to have even a tender heart. So he's getting a little bit deeper than just the external. We can smile and be nice to each other and hate each other's guts, right? That's not exactly the intention of that. A tender heart and then forgiving each other when someone sins against you. And the basis, the model is God has done this for you. In and through Christ, he has forgiven you. God has been gracious and patient with you. You be patient with others. Christ, through his work on the cross, has forgiven you of your sins. How can you not forgive others now? The debt that you owed is far greater than anyone will ever sin against you. And this is the model, the example. The gospel serves as our example. The exemplary gospel tells us how to live. He he says the same thing in the sister book, Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, there's this phrase, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, this is why sometimes these little phrases are so important. As God in Christ has forgiven you, that is the example in your life. Forgive as God has forgiven you. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And some of these I think are kind of obvious examples, but they're sprinkled throughout the New Testament. Even fun to look for, all these connections. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, what are we to do? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. There's that exhortation to humility. I think he's even getting at love itself. What is love? Counting others more important than yourself. And that's the exhortation for the church there, the Philippians, who had disunity. And there was conflict there. He's saying, you need to have a humble mindset and count others more significant than yourselves. Imagine what might happen in a local church if we all did this regularly. Amazing impact. Amazing impact on the community as well. So... But what's the basis of this exhortation? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So what's the connection here? Do you see the gospel? The gospel here, Christ took on flesh, which was a humble thing to do. He didn't have to do that. And then he died, and Paul says, even to the point of death, death on a cross. He got as low as he possibly could go in his humility, a shameful death taking our sin. And so in light of that, Paul says, count others more significant than yourself. This is what Christ has done. Making that gospel connection there. 
humility, kindness, and love are always connected back to Christ and what he's done for us. It is the model for us in how to live. Have this mind, have the mind of Jesus in your own life. He is our example. In Ephesians, we're going to see later in chapter 5, verse 2, he says to walk in love as Christ himself has loved us. He just he does this constantly. You're to love each other, not because that's the right thing to do, but because the Lord has already done that for you. Now you, in return, live in a way that displays that love. So the gospel is a model for us. Secondly, the gospel empowers us. And I've already kind of primed this pump a little bit. The gospel empowers us. It is the power of, of God, right? Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1. And Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 1, for us being saved. It is not only the power of God for the unbeliever, the means God uses to bring them to salvation. It is continuing to be the power in your life. It is the driving force that produces life change, that empowers us to live for God. Back to Ephesians 4. It is what empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And the only times that Paul speaks of power in his 13 letters is in reference to the gospel. You know, we could speak about a lot of things being powerful. Um, Different energy sources, different, you know, we think of the sun as a great source of power. But Paul doesn't use it for that reason. He uses it for the gospel. The gospel empowers us to live for God. It's so powerful, it can raise the spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, right? Those of us, we were once dead in our sins and the trespasses that we had. We were made alive in God, all through Christ, all through his grace, all through that gospel message. It's so powerful, it provides the very enabling energy to live the Christian life. The, the dunamis, the power, the, the dynamite power, the energy, the force, the strength to live the Christian life. It shapes our hearts. It trains us for godly living. It continues or should continue to impact us in our Christian life. Sometimes uh, I think Paul uses the gospel as a synonym for the Spirit's power. You know, the Spirit is the one working in us and he's using the truth of Scripture, the truth of the Word, the truth of the Gospel to affect us. And it continues to empower us. If you don't reflect on the Gospel, if you forget the Gospel, and you find yourself weak in an area of the Christian life, then start there. Have I been thinking about Christ? Have I been thinking about what he's done on my behalf? Even worry, even doubts in the Christian life. And struggling. Maybe you don't even know why you're struggling. Go back to the gospel. That's what God uses in your life on a regular basis. Let me give you a third and final one. And it's this. The gospel motivates us. The gospel motivates us. And some of these are are a little similar. It is our example, our model kind of the template by which we live our life and we, we follow the pattern of Christ and him crucified. 
And at the same time, it empowers us. God uses it to energize us in the Christian life. And also, it is the motivating factor in our life. It is a kind of catalyst to godly living, a constant motivation in our life, a kind of holy fuel that you can fill your car up with. And it keeps you going in the right direction, in the path of your Savior. It spurs us on to love and good deeds. The gospel is what spurs us on to walk a worthy life, a worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The gospel is the motivating factor in our life. I read this earlier from Galatians 2, verse 20. Once you turn with me there to Galatians 2, verse 20. Listen for the gospel as I read this. Paul's talking about himself and how he lives his life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch it? (laughs) Paul's very predictable. A little bit more than Peter, James, and John, and Jude, and Luke. But here he says, I'm dead, essentially. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not around anymore. It's not about me. I'm not living my life for me. But I live my life, right? It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, so Paul's still alive, but the life I'm living now in the flesh as a human on the earth, I'm living for him. I'm living by faith in Christ. I'm looking to him. I'm trusting him. I'm trying to follow his example, and I'm doing all of this for him who loved me and gave himself for me. The the motivation for Paul there every day, particularly through suffering and difficulty, is he loved me, and he gave himself for me. He died for me. I live because Christ gave himself for me. I live each day in response to, to that reality. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Another connection of the gospel here. 1 Corinthians 6. In the context, starting at verse 12, uh, Paul is quoting someone that said, all things are lawful for me. You know, back then they would say, you know what, anything's good. It's all good, doesn't matter. No discernment needed. And Paul says, uh, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I don't want to become enslaved to something, even if it's good and permissible. And then he begins to address the body in various ways. And then he addresses there, verse 16, about, um, and the Corinthians were deep into sexual immorality, at least, at least some of them were. There's one earlier in chapter 5 who was committing some kind of incest in the church with a family member, and nobody was saying anything about it. Uh, and he seemed to be parading his sin to some extent. And he's, he's telling them here to avoid sexual immorality. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there's, that, there's the exhortation, the command, even a little bit just, Uh, Paul's just saying, even if it affects you, 
You know, some sins, you might argue, it just affects somebody else, but, but this actually affects you physically as well. Flee from this entirely. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just say, avoid this, stay away from this, this isn't good. But what does he say? Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He makes a connection to the gospel. Why? Because it's the model for us, because it's the power to live the Christian life, and because thirdly, it's the motivating factor for purity. I mean, you could argue a lot of things on a physical level to to help prevent you from going that direction. But Paul addresses this gospel truth. Notice here, do you not know? Are you ignorant? Do you not know your theology? Do you understand that life, the Christian life begins with doctrine? This is why back in Ephesians 1 through 3, there's a lot of doctrine first before he gives the practical exhortation and imperatives there. And so we, we cannot be ignorant about Christ and what he's done on our behalf. Do you not know, um, and they should because Paul had been around them for at least 18 months there, Acts 18. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within, within you, whom you have from God? He's been gifted to you. You have God himself in you, in your body. I mean, this is somewhat of a mystery. How does that work? How, how can the Spirit of God dwell in a person? But the reality is that's what happens to each and every Christian. Do you not know what has happened to you? Have you forgotten who you are? It's kind of how Paul talks a lot. He even will say in a sense, uh, the Christian life is like just living in light of who you already are. That's what the Christian life is. You're saved, you're adopted, you're a child of God. Live that way. And here, everything has changed. Your body is now a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, who is within you, you have been given to him, given him from God as a kind of gift. We saw that in Ephesians 1, remember? He has given us his Holy Spirit as a kind of guarantee of a future inheritance. But not only that, he, he connects this more from purity and sexuality to the gospel because the gospel is the motivating factor for living this way. It's the power of God. What does he say? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Interesting, isn't it? You actually don't own yourself anymore. Somebody else owns you. Jesus owns you. He's the master. Remember Ephesians 1, that you were purchased he, through his death, bought you, rescued you. Now you are his. And Paul is using that idea here for their own purity. And that is the gospel. You know, where is the gospel here? It's right here. You were bought with a price. That's the gospel. Paul's doing this again and again. You could say it this way. It's the sufficiency of the gospel. The gospel is sufficient for any area of life. 
any area. Gives you great confidence, doesn't it? Why flee immorality? Legal consequences, physical consequences. Why pursue purity? Paul says because everything has changed in your life. Because you're Christ now. He owns you. Because you have the Spirit. Because you've been bought. He owns you. The the gospel is the Spirit-intended motivating power for purity. And it's a matter of not only making that connection, but living each day in light of that reality. There can be practical guards and barriers in our life to help us strive for purity. Uh, those things can be very helpful and sometimes absolutely necessary. We, we live in a very difficult world, a very immoral world that, that hits us at every angle. I know I probably sound like a young guy saying this, but I do think it's probably harder now than it used to be. You know, every generation says it's far more difficult today than it used to be. But there's a lot more temptation today, I think, that is hitting people, particularly the younger people uh, through social media and the digital world. Um, It used to be maybe a billboard you'd have to avoid, you know, or avoid the section in the gas station. and, And now it's everywhere. We've got, to, we've got to be immersing ourselves in the gospel. We've got to remember Christ and him crucified. I think it's why he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, that I want to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then he spends 16 chapters saying a bunch of other things. But what is he saying? At the end of the day, what should be central in your hearts is you living in light of Christ and him crucified. And the Spirit uses that to change your life. This isn't just physical strength and willpower. I'm just gonna, ugh, I'm just gonna try to live the Christian life in my own strength. You're not gonna get anywhere. You're gonna fall on your face. We need God's help. We have here not only the power of God, but the motivating factor to live the Christian life. You know, there's no secret theological truth that you're going to look for that's going to change everything in your life immediately. It's the gospel. It's the same thing you've known. And sometimes I think we fall into that trap. Oh, there's something in the scriptures, probably in like Obadiah, you know, or somewhere I haven't found it quite yet. If I just know that thing, it'll make all the difference in the world. But Paul says here, it's the gospel. It's simply who Christ is and what he's done on your behalf. The gospel is the power of God, the motivating factor to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. It's the truth that Christ died for our sins. It's the truth, make it personal, that Christ died for you. He died in your place. He humbled himself. He gave up everything for you. It affected Paul that he repeats it, as we've seen in a few places. He made it very personal in Galatians 2.20. He gave himself for me. Paul says. Paul, murderer Paul, who used to kill Christians, he gave himself for me. Make this connection in your own life. He's making this connection to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians. um, And he continues to do that as the power of God. Remind yourself, you are not your own. Remind yourself that you were bought with 
a price. Remind yourself that you've been forgiven by God through Christ. Reminding, memorize these verses. Stick them in your car, just drive safely. And on your bathroom mirror, whatever you need to do to remember these things. And so Paul here for 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, flee immorality, but remember who you are in Christ. There's so many more. Let me give you one more. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One or two more. (laughs) And then you have to figure out the rest on your own. There was a collection being made in that first century. Paul was helping to get a collection of money for the church in Jerusalem. They were under persecution. They were suffering. Many people lost their jobs and their families when they became a Christian. And so um, they're going through. There's even a famine. There's a lot of things going on then. They're gathering a collection there. And he's telling the Corinthians too, you know, give when I come in. He He would tell the churches there, when I come into town, Give towards this so that we can help our brothers and sisters. Um, Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Prove your love by giving to your brothers and sisters. So he's he's telling them, give financially. Um, Some pastors love to preach on that, by the way. (laughs) I generally avoid it, but you need to give more money. Why should you give anything? Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become what? Rich. Isn't this great? Where's the gospel here? Christ became poor that you might become rich. That's the gospel. That's like Philippians 2, humbling himself, giving of himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you could easily argue the most wealthy person in the history of the universe is Jesus. (laughs) You know, he owned everything. He had angels singing praises of him. He gave up everything for your sake. He became poor so that through his poverty, his death, his humbling of himself, you might become rich. You might be saved. You might get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace towards you in the ages to come. Here he connects the gospel. Why should we give financially, or why should we give of our time, our energy, our resources? Why do we give a meal to someone who's sick? You know, you guys are doing a shower today. Uh, Why are we doing those things? Because there's a connection to the gospel. Christ has given everything up for me. How can I not help someone? How can I not help a brother or sister in need? The gospel is that motivating factor in my life. Because Christ, who was rich, became poor for me. That I might become rich. I want to do the same. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to give up money, time, resources, energy. You know, sometimes in your life, you don't have much money to give up at all. So you give time. Maybe you give your energy up to help others. Maybe you have resources you can give others. You just want to give. Paul does this. Let's return to Ephesians chapter 4, and I will bring us to a close. These are the gospel connections. 
So when you come to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is exactly what he's doing for the Ephesians. It's exactly what God is intending to do for you. Connect what Christ has done for you practically in each area of life. The sufficiency of the gospel. He shows them how to live. How to conduct themselves as the church. How to have relationships there later in chapter 4. All centered around what Christ has done. We need to. We, we must think in the way that Christ thinks. We must live our life in the way that Christ lived his life. One pastor I heard years ago said, all of our problems in life are a failure to apply the gospel. All of our problems in life are a failure to apply the gospel. Remember the awkward moment in the New Testament when Paul confronted Peter? That would have been a strange moment, wouldn't it be? Two pillars of the church, Peter and Paul. And what does Paul tell the Galatians there in chapter 2, verse 14? He said, when I saw that their conduct, this is Peter and some of the other Jewish Christians there, uh, they weren't eating with the Gentiles anymore. They were, they were being good Jews, but they weren't being good Christians. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What he says there is Peter got out of step with the gospel. He forgot the gospel. And I find that an encouragement. I'm always encouraged by Peter. You know, Paul, Paul seems flawless, doesn't he? You know, he's perfect. Thank you for Peter. Thank you for some of these. The, the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. You know, always put a foot in his mouth. Very thankful for his example. But he got out of step with the gospel. And, and so Paul was there to say, Peter, have you forgotten what Christ has done? Pastor C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, writes this. Reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. He says we must create practices that will enable us to remember what we must not forget, the cross. So, he says, each day I seek to spend time in a location where I am not distracted, unheardedly reading and meditating on Scripture, and finding my way in Scripture to a hill called Calvary to meditate each day on Christ and Him crucified. Each day I need to remind myself of the gospel. I cannot live on yesterday's recollection of the gospel I need to review and rehearse the gospel each day or I will assume the gospel, forget the gospel, and prove vulnerable to all manner of temptation and sin. I I am going to forget it. You are going to forget it, friends. The greatest news in the history of the world. You have to remind yourself of this every day. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, right? He says earlier in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 1 there, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by it. 
Think about it. Remember it. Rehearse it. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, wrote, if you are not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and you will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. This is a man many decades ago that wrote the famous book, The Pursuit of Holiness. He's saying, stay there. Remember it. Remember the grace of God in your life. So here, Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, that's worthy of the calling to which he has called you. We live in the context of the grace of God. It is the environment in which we live and in which we grow. That's what he told the Colossians as well. It just, you know, all kinds of things pop up in my mind. He says there in Colossians 1.5, You have heard before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the first day you heard it. The gospel's continuing to grow in your life. It's like a plant that continues to grow, continues to impact you. And so that's all that to say. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4 starting in verse 1. I've told you the gospel. I've told you the truth of what Christ has done on your behalf. You are dead in your sin. God has made you alive through his son. I want you to walk in light of that. I want that to change your life every day. I want it to be part of who you are so that you say, as Paul did, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let me close with the very end of Second Peter. Good old Peter, you know. Second Peter 3.18, it's a great way to close here. Peter says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are, thank- we, we are so thankful that you are grace personified. That the grace of God appeared in and through you. Bringing salvation for all people, but also training us. Lord, it's through you, it's through your, your grace in our life in light of what you've done that trains us, equips us, shapes us, continues to convict us, but also continues to spur us on to love and good deeds. Lord, would you help us, please, to better understand the gospel, to better understand you and what you've done on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.